Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 323. We're recording on Thursday, July 25th, 2019. I'm Jeff. Here's Rebecca. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hey, hey. You want to tell them about Just, what's coming up next week? Tell them, oh, tell them, give them a preview. Little taste. Little, little, little something, something. Little cryptex. All right. How much context? Next week, we are... Not, not, not context, a cryptex. A cryptex. Isn't it in it? It's in that, right? Mm-hmm. It sure Which is. Which will probably be something we talk about. I mean, it's... You got to talk We're about it. We're going to cross the cryptex. Dan Brown Meridian next week. We are. We are... Boy. You know, we said last week we're experimenting with some things to add to the show, some maybe bonus content to bring to ye old Book Riot podcast mm-hmm. feed. And one of the things we've wanted to do for a long time is Book Nerd Movie Hour, where we read a book and we watch the movie and we talk about it. And there is no better option for kicking that off than the Da Vinci Code. It's the number one overall draft pick. It's the AAA. There is no do not plas go, do not collect $200 choice to try this on, to have fun with mm-hmm. this, the Da Vinci Code. So if you want to read it or watch it or just prepare your soul, uh, <laughs> it, is, in the inner, in the, it is coming. And it is on Netflix. About it. So, yes, it is on Netflix. You can go watch it right now. Um, also, you can get it literally anywhere, the book. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. If you look under enough rocks, there'll be a, a worn copy of the Da Vinci Code. It probably the, comes... I'm so excited. Yeah, I think it comes standard with every little free library, at least one yep. mass market paperback of the Da Vinci Code. I am so excited, too. I'm almost done with my reread. I'm going to watch mm-hmm. the movie this weekend. My soul is just very ready. We're still figuring out kind of the the structure, but... I think this is mostly a movie episode with the book as ancillary material, right? Do I have that yeah, right? Yeah, I think kind so of how too. We're about mm-hmm. it? I have yeah. a few notes about you know little things from the book. The book is you know like almost twenty years old. It's pretty. There's mm. been some time since this book came out and some culture changes. So yeah. I have some notes about some things. I've been visiting the Google quite a little bit, um, but yeah, I think we're mostly going to talk about the movie as it relates to you know source material. Yeah, so get ready for that. We're looking forward to that one. All right, let's do our first sponsor before we get into the the news of the week. Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Okay. Uh, late breaking book deal news. You have three exclamation <laughs> points 
about this one. So why don't you, <laughs> that, that says to me that you should do the read on, on what yep. this story If I were is. texting this to someone, I would text it with the clap emoji between each word. Mm. Megan Rapino, captain of the U.S. women's national team. She's a soccer player. In case you have been living under one of those rocks with a Da Vinci Code copy under it and you don't know, uh, she got a book deal, two books. Um, she's been giving all kinds of speeches and making all kinds of appearances since the World Cup victory. And uh, in one of her speeches, she has, in many of them actually, she's been talking about social justice, about our responsibility to make the world a better place. And it was just announced this morning that she has a two book deal acquired by Penguin Press. The first is expected to come out in the fall of 2020 um, that will address this idea of social responsibility. It will be anecdotes from her life and um, her experience as a groundbreaking soccer player, not just a groundbreaking female soccer player, but groundbreaking, mm. period. She's spoken out on politics, about LGBTQ rights. Um, she is sort of following in Abby Wambach's steps of fighting for equal pay equity for um, for women soccer players. If you're not aware, they make a lot less than the members of the men's national team. And she's very well-spoken, very honest, and straightforward, unapologetic. I could not love her more. I'm ready for these books. I'm like, I, mm. I, the plan is in place. I'm going to listen to them on Audible. I'm going to drive around imagining that Megan Rapino is my best friend. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Rapino book deal. It's interesting to think about um, how athletes have a different platform than, I guess, a politician, mm. um, even more than an actor, like a, like a, like a celebrity or a musician because their body is so much on display sort of organically and I don't know, just unedited. Mm. Like I, I, it was struck to me watching her, especially after they had won the, the world cup that with an athlete, you see them react and walk around in real time, mm -hmm. which is not something you have access to with other celebrities really. Um, and there, I think that's one of the reasons that athletes have their own kind of social media presence, their own sorts of um, profiles and platforms. And she seems both very comfortable to be in public, just, just to be herself, but also very interested in doing something with it. And it's been a little bit of a moment since I think we've had someone of her stature mm -hmm. um, be willing to go out and say the kinds of things she's saying. I'm trying to remember the last one. Like we get memoirs by athletes all the time. Um, but one where it feels like she's leading with politics yes. um, rather than having it be a, a chaser, so to speak. It is the shot. Um, and that her own story is, I think, a bit of the chaser here. I, I'm racking my brains thinking of one, you know, because we never got the Kaepernick book. I went Googling that in prep for this episode mm -hmm. that he had a million dollar book deal that was announced. Right, we talked about it. Yeah. In 2017. And we, it, it doesn't exist. It just never yet. happened or it, it hasn't happened yet or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm very interested to see in fall of 2020, it's not that far in book terms in, 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 I guess the ether terms, mm -hmm. it could be wildly different. I mean, that's election time. I mean, who knows um, what's going to be going on there in a way I'm not more interested, but differently interested in the middle grade book. I think that's super smart mm -hmm. to do them at the same time. Um, watching my daughter who is only six, watch the women's team play 
um, it, it was even it was obvious to me that the, there was an appetite for younger kids. Uh, my son too, really. That we were wrapped the whole time. It's like, yeah, the, the kids kids play soccer earlier yep. than they play other sports, and it's easier to understand from a kid's point of view what's going on. In this. It's, it's a soccer and a ball and a net and a whole bunch of people. It's not football. It's not baseball. It's not something like that. So it's it's very easy to understand to see her larger than life on a 65 inch TV and in, in HD, like right in your living room. Um, very interesting to see the, the world really react to her. Um, and a brazenness, and I use that positively that historically has not been afforded women in athletics, uh, much more, you know, go outside of Navratilova. It's a little bit more, there's a certain decorum expected, um, or not even a decorum, but a diminutiveness ex- expected. And she wants no part of that, which is awesome to see. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what she does with this too. I wonder what the advance was. I mean, how, this is a big deal. Is it a, I, I have a hard time knowing what the market is for c- celebrity memoirs in general. I don't see th- those numbers very often. They don't tend to show up, but they tend to sell for a long time. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think if it had been a really big deal, the numbers probably would yeah. have come out. Like in the in revisiting the announcement about the Kaepernick book deal, part of those headlines was that it was a million dollar book deal. And he was, I think, about as hot and visible at that time as Rapino is now for some of the same reasons, but some of them different. Um and, you know, the Obamas, obviously that's like a mm. huge book deal. We got that number. I would guess it's high six mm. figures, but not into the okay. millions would be my yeah. guess. And, and just, you know, I would also guess they're going to see how mm-hmm. it goes. Um, she, I think has the potential to have legs as a public figure and as a, as a writer who's sort of taking her mm-hmm. public work and her political work into books, speaking tours. Like she's, I think part of that same could be part of the same group of writers who also do social activism mm-hmm. work and work for women's, not just rights, but also women's communities, Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach and a whole bunch of writers sort of have this like traveling band mm-hmm. <laughs> that do things together. I could see her um, falling into that as well. So I, I would guess like high six figures, but if it, I think that if it were a, a really big number that they would have been releasing that as part of the story. Speaking of big numbers, I don't, this is not exactly the boulder we've been waiting for to roll down the hill, but it's not, it's a rock um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Dean Koontz, um, who, if you don't know who that is, you've probably seen his books at the airport or the bookstore or the grocery store, Um, a multi-million selling. And by multi-million, I mean 500 million copy selling writer of thrillers, right? I mean, that that's, it's in the, mm-hmm. it's in the ballpark with your Pattersons and the what have you's, um, signed a five book deal with Thomas and Mercer, who is the thriller imprint of Amazon publishing. So this is the biggest name I think we've seen do an Amazon deal. Am I forgetting someone? No, I think this is the mm-hmm. biggest name. The other bigger um, name that we've heard or other big name we've heard recently is right. Mindy Kaling for an Amazon exclusive. And I think like there's just no, no arguing that Dean Koontz is bigger, especially with decades of publishing mm-hmm. history. 
So the first one, the first book is called Devoted. It comes out next spring. And the first thriller collection is called Nameless. And it will be available from Amazon Original Stories for free to Prime Mm. and Kindle Unlimited customers on November 12th. So that's very soon. So they're doing a hybrid thing there where he's got the book deal um, through Thomas and Mercer, and that will be a book that you will have to purchase. But these short thriller collections, it looks like, are the sweetener, or maybe, as we've been talking about it, the user retention mm-hmm. tool um, for Prime and Kindle Unlimited customers that are coming on November 12th. Like all these other ones that we're seeing, I don't know that people are going to like sign up for Prime or sign up for Kindle Unlimited to get the Dean Koontz goodness, but I also don't think that's yeah. the intent. It is a nice benefit to have. If you're already using Prime or Kindle Unlimited, you're reading on a Kindle or in the Kindle app, there's a pretty decent mm-hmm. chance that you've read a Dean yes. Koontz book and you're going to give this one a shot. Fascinating. I mean, we don't know the dollar amount. I would guess this is eight figures, I would think. I would think for so, five? too. For, for the five books yeah. alone. Um, and then you have the six short thrillers. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Um, the interesting quote from Koontz's team Although there were numerous options for the future, it was most natural sign with the team at Amazon Publishing, which presented a marketing and publicity plan smarter and more ambitious than anything I'd ever seen before. This new arrangement is so excited, huh. exciting. I've been, in, I've been creatively rejuvenated. The times are changing, and it's invigorating to be where change is understood and embraced. All I've got to say is shots fired uh-huh. at traditional publishing. And- yeah, and Dean Koontz also no stranger to a big no, marketing no, plan. No, no, from a publisher, there have been dollars behind those books for a very long mm-hmm. time. So if he's looking for something even bigger and fresh, uh, that's I, for sure a shot fired. I mean, w- one thing we've been noodling around, tracing, following, you know, really just be interested in, frankly, is the way Amazon has. Why Amazon and then kind of by extension or by corollary, audio downloads and digital have had a special strength in genre. Um, And Amazon Mm -hmm. has been especially interested in genre thrillers and mysteries. I think a lot of them get sold on Kindles and a lot of them get sold on Audible. And every time someone finishes one of these genre thrillers, they could say, and here's the next Dean Koontz. And it's one of their titles, yep. and here it is, and here it is, and it's on the cover of your Kindle when you're getting the ads for it. It's in the email. It's in the thing. Like, I think it's really interesting. I'd love to know what it was about their pitch that wasn't just dollar signs. I mean, maybe it's a dollar sign argument. It doesn't sound like it is. If we take it at face value, that it's something other than dollar signs. I bet he could have gotten traditional publishing to sort of match the advance. I'm just guessing. I would think so. Um, but I'd love to know, what are the two bullet points that Amazon said showed to, to Dean Coons that he's like, okay, this is a horse of a different color. I don't know. Yeah, there's a quote a little um, further down in the piece from Richard Pine and Kimberly Kimberly Witherspoon of Inkwell Management, um, which I presume yeah. is Koontz's agency, that say even when an author's books have sold over 500 million yeah. copies, there are new horizons to explore and readers who haven't yet discovered his work. And that sounds both like Amazon is going to do something innovative with the process of publicity and also use the uh, the ways that they have to reach new readers for mm-hmm. Koontz um, to get his work to new eyes. So I wonder who that, who, who would it be that would read Koontz on Kindle that 
I, I don't know. I'm sure maybe they have data. I mean, maybe that's another thing is they've got, yeah, I mean, they've got data right. on people's Kindle accounts and they're like, they read mysteries and thrillers, but they've never read Dean Koontz and they just know that. That's something that no publisher can offer him. Really, right? right? Unless I'm forgetting something. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also a threshold of like awareness of an author with a name this big, but maybe you just haven't read Dean Koontz yeah. before or you're not willing to spend dollars on it, but you'll dive into one of these free mm. short thriller collections. And if you like that, then they might be able to upsell you to the next book. Um, so I think there's some potential there. Like I'm thinking about my own reading habits. I've known who Dean Koontz is forever. I think I probably read some of my dad's Dean Koontz books off of his bookshelf when I was like, you know, 11 looking for something to read in the house, not part of my reading life now, but if I were like noodling around uh, in a reading app in the airport and it was like, you can try this, you know, short thriller for free. I'd probably give it a shot. He is one of only a dozen writers ever to have 14 or more novels um, make number one on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list for wow. fiction. I mean, these are, these are, th- these fancy. are, here's the thing that's interesting about it. this is one of, these are one of the dynamos, Kuntz, your Patterson's, um, I'm forgetting, mm-hmm. you know, the Grisham's, Nora, Nora Ro- Roberts. Th- these are the pistons that fire the engine of publishing. The stuff you and I are interested in, largely is made possible by this stuff and yep. big five traditional publishers losing this is a big deal. Like I can't imagine that anyone is very happy to see this happening and boy, they hope it doesn't go well. The only thing they like worse than this happening is it working. Um, so we're going to see. Right. Like I think if you're traditional publishing, you need to be really afraid that the next 50 shades of gray or Da Vinci code sized phenomenon is going to come out of Amazon or that that writer is going to take a deal with Amazon rather than taking a deal from you because like, and we talked about it when 50 Mm -hmm. shades of gray was booming that like, whatever you think about that series, a book that sells this many copies has underwritten the existence of like so many Mm. literary novels and poetry collections and things that publishers publish for the value of the art, but that will never make back the money. And you're right. Like I had not threaded that needle all the way, but publishers losing one of the authors that sells 500 (laughs) million copies. (laughs) Like that's just a, that is astronomical and it does have the power to underwrite the existence of a lot of other kinds Mm. of work that is important, that contributes artistic value, but that publishers can't do and stay in business if they don't also have Dean Koontz. Um, I mean, the telling example that I remember we talked about on the show or off from the 50 shades of gray was Mm. that I think it was the year after the, I can't remember exactly. I think before the movie came out, but it was at the height where most of the profits from 50 shades of gray showed up on um, random house's balance sheet. Every full-time employee at random house got a check for five grand directly attributable to 50 shades of gray. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of anything like that happening before. Maybe it's happened in other sorts of situations, but one title, the power law stuff about profit and publishing is one of the great surprises that I've learned over time, right? That it's really a mm-hmm. winner subsidizes all sort of situation <laughs> with a lot of these books. And this is one of those. This is one of those cash cows that allows publishers to do a lot of different things. Now, this is one title. They have backlist and so on and so forth. But this is not the kind of 
this is not the canary you want in your coal mine. You don't want this canary in any coal mine if you're publishing. No. Um, you, I think we've been waiting for the day to happen. I think, weirdly, Coot is both representative and not scary enough because, like, for you, I've never read, read Coot. I couldn't name one of his books. Not, I don't think any of his stuff has been made into a big movie. Like, he's not Lee Child, right? Like, he doesn't have that kind of brand name. But in a way, it's almost worse because mm-hmm. someone who's rank and file... Um, the, the rank and file big dollar author is willing to make a move, which we had said for someone like Patterson, who is the most profitable brand in publishing. You know, we had said maybe for those kinds of people, maybe it's not worth. They're making millions of dollars anyway. Why would they go do this? Well, here we go. Someone has done the math, mm-hmm. or not done the math and said this is interesting creatively. I've sold all. What do I want to sell? Five hundred twenty million, or do I want to do something different? Right. Like, there's something else attractive here that's beyond what they've already had, and that that difference is telling. I think, and maybe Kuntz is an idiosyncratic guy, and he likes it for reasons that um, the Lee Childs and Pattersons. And the Nora Roberts don't, but I think to get to this level, these guys aren't these, these men and women aren't dumb. The people that write like this, no. they they're not making uh, fly by night emotional decisions about what they're going to do with their empires. Um, so this is as interesting as a story about this as I've seen for 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 me for Amazon and their publishing business. This is a big deal. Maybe I'm wrong, but this seems like a big deal. Yeah, I think it's a big deal too. And it will be interesting to see like if this is becomes a bellwether if or I don't know if bellwether is the word Harbinger? I want. Anyway, it'll be interesting I mean, yeah, to see I don't if, know. like if or if Kuntz is just the bell cow yeah. here, like you know, the first one to the to really go do this thing. Stephen King has done some, you know, yeah. interesting experiments with I'm going to publish in this place and not this other place. Um He's he might be suffering some from like he's the first mover right. often and it's a little too early. Like Stephen King, I think, is ahead of his time sometimes in mm-hmm. innovation. Um, be interesting to see if anyone follows how this goes, if anybody follows Coons. But it doesn't look like Amazon is slowing down. And we have to assume that these deals we're hearing about now have been in the works for quite a while. So like what else have they been working <sighs> yeah. on for the last two years that we're going to hear about? I mean, they soon? surely have approached all the, the names we could think of, all the embossed names. I'm sure they've approached them all. Um, I wonder mm-hmm. how big of it, sometimes there's a first mover thing too, where none of them did it. But now that Kuntz has done it, does um, Patricia Cornwell become more interested? You know, she can get a data point on people mm-hmm. like her. Right. And like, who knows how many books are left in the deals that those yeah. writers have with well, their existing publishers point. too. Like Kuntz might've been at a place where he's fulfilled an mm. obligation to his existing publisher and he can go, you know, now move his next five books somewhere well, else. I, I, I don't, I just don't know. Um, cause if Amazon wanted to write checks so big that they know they would never earn it out just to take the margin getters away from big five, they could do that if they wanted to, I think, um, just make a big enough deal to move people mm-hmm. over and really kind of starve them from the inside. Like I'd love to know, um, for Hachette, which is Patterson's, I mean, he has his own imprints, like multiple own imprints, but that's the the house under which he operates. Like, what percentage of their margin is directly attributable to Patterson? You could tell me a very high number, and I would not be aghast. I might be surprised, but you could tell me all the way mm-hmm. up into more than fifty percent, and I wouldn't be completely awestruck. Is that right? I mean, am, yeah. am I, I'm not. Ballpark, I think so. Right? I I yeah. agree with that. Yeah, and I think like I'm sure that all of these deals have 
NDAs oh, on top of yeah. NDAs. <laughs> but I would love to know if from the author's perspective, like I'm sure the dollar signs are compelling. Mm. It sounds like for Dean Koontz, the option to go do something creative and different, see what a different approach to publishing and publicity look like was also compelling. But like, did they think about what this does to the bottom line of the publisher that they've been part of for a long time. What did the publisher say? Like, did they know before it was a done deal that this was happening? Because you can't be the size of James Patterson or Dean Koontz or Patricia Cornwell or Nora Roberts and be unaware Mm. of how important the money you bring to your publisher is to them. Um, And it's, it's not, I don't know that Dean Koontz or any one of the other ones has like a moral obligation to subsidize the publishing industry. I'm, I think Koontz has done enough, no. like 500 million copies. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of uh, juice to pump into the publishing ecosystem. But, you know, it's like in sports, sometimes you see a free agency signing where like the Red Sox signs someone away from the Yankees. Like when they signed, oh, I'm trying to remember the Red Sox. I, it doesn't matter. But like, oh, like when, when yeah, uh, Johnny Damon signed with the Yankees after the Red Sox won the World Series, not only do you get a great player, but you take a great player off the other team. Like it's a double win um, in that kind of a situation. So I wonder if that's at all part of the value proposition Amazon is wondering about. Now, there's a lot of books get sold out there. No one author sells a meaningful enough number of books to affect the publishing industry writ large. But maybe you get your pawns rolling on the left side, then you bring up the bush, bishop and the rook. Like, you know, um, to to win the game of chess, you've got to move the small pieces first. And this is a pretty good piece to move, and it shows that the pieces will move. Like, it's impossible that mm-hmm. a big piece will move. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there's an author, author that would move over that would say now we've, that we this is the tipping point. It would be several in a row like you'd have to do your Pattersons you'd have to do your Kings you'd have to do your um, Grishams um, which I don't think all of them would some of it is that a lot of these people have been around for so long they're older they tend to get risk averse they're, pre- they're dealt with pretty well here is the next generation of thriller writers fostered on, uh, on an Amazon platform like who are the young guns out there selling a bunch of copies are going to be the next generation um, mm-hmm. you know, fascinating, fascinating right. and, to see. And when you're the size of Koontz, you can afford to take oh, that sure. kind of risk. If you get zero from this, you he's know, all right. 500 million copies, yeah. right. He's doing yeah. okay. <laughs> fascinating. Um, it's going to be interesting to follow. Um, fascinating to follow for bad reasons. Um, oh, no. It's, it's a, the story is a, it's a wild one. It, it's not wild in so far as like not something we've heard before, but it's a little particular in how this got implemented. And I'd encourage you to read the post we're going to talk about. But basically, um, Lila Sturgis, who was scheduled to make an appearance at the Leander, Texas Public Library, had her event canceled just hours before the visit. And there's sort of a Kafka-esque explanation about a previously unannounced guest speaker restriction where they're supposed to have a background check. But the people organizing and Lila herself didn't know it. She is transgender which isn't explicitly stated, but because she's transgender and because this is this particular place in Texas where there's been some talk about, um, you know, censorship issues, that the the sense is that this is an arbitrary enforcement of rules that are not uniformly applied, and it's used as an excuse to get someone they don't want in the library there. It's a little unclear to me who was the one to raise the the red flag of prejudice here, if that's what's actually happening. Like there's no name given to Mm -hmm. such and such made a complaint or blah, blah, blah. 
Um, city officials canceled the event before Sturgis, hours before Sturgis um, scheduled to appear, citing an expanded event policy that imposed a background check. She was not told about this ahead of time. I'm uh, not sure what to say here, but I would encourage you to read the whole article. This is the kind of thing we're seeing. We, we talked about this a little bit before where it's not an individual person or group putting their name to a um, objection or an effort to get something censored, banned, or otherwise, I don't know, silenced. It's working within the bureaucracy and knowing someone who knows someone else and have sort of a bureaucratic trigger pull and there's no, mm-hmm. and there's no fingerprints on the gun because the bureaucracy did it. Um, yeah, this is pretty similar to, uh, or it has some things in common with a story we talked about a few weeks ago of teachers and librarians that had put together a graphic novel reading list that included LGBTQ titles, and the list was approved at the time that they pitched it. All of the school district people were in support of it. They got the funding to order the books. And then after the fact, some policies appeared in the school district about the format of the books and some things that were uh, on their face unrelated to the content that meant that the LGBTQ title got pulled from the list. This looks relatively similar where uh, the library management had told city officials about um, Sturgis coming to speak. The city officials didn't object. And then at some point, the library um, announced that there were, they initiated a review of library event policies and the new policies temporarily barred external groups from using the meeting room. Um, Sturgis was the only speaker to be denied access to the library with her uh, sort of unplanned guests. Since that time, youth events have been held in the meeting rooms uh, in the same space that Sturgis was scheduled to speak. Other guest speakers that are unaffiliated with the library have been allowed access to the space and young people without background checks or prior city approval have been allowed in. So this was a policy that just appeared out of nowhere, uh, seems to only have been applied to Lila Sturgis and is not directly attributable to anyone. It's very fishy indeed. So as Jeff said, you can access the whole story about this from the link in the show notes, but do please take a look. It is very hand-wavy, Kafka-esque, a policy that didn't previously exist, magically only existed to apply to Lila Sturgis. And there don't seem to be any names of any people responsible for this attached to it or willing to explain or defend it. And that is quite worrisome. Yeah. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Okay. uh, Let's do another sponsor and uh, we'll be, we're we're heading towards the end here. Okay. Where do you want to go here? Hmm. Well... You know, here's an interesting one because we talk sometimes just about publishers trying interesting things and the difficulty of getting a publishing deal. Avon Books, which is the the or a what the big romance imprint from HarperCollins, um, has opened up to submissions. You don't have to have an agent to submit your romance novel to them, and they are seeking writers of all gender identity, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, religion, national origin, and ability, and own voices stories are highly encouraged. This is open through September 15th. They're taking manuscripts for all subgenres of adult romance. They require Happily Ever After or Happily For Now. Those are H-E-A and H-F-N if you are a romance reader. And the full guidelines are included. You don't need to have the whole manuscript submitted. You've got to have a three to five page synopsis and a bio. Um, And there's, you know, a whole bunch of other details here. But if Mm. you are a budding romance 
writer, um, particularly one from a marginalized background, and you have a story that should be told but is often not represented on the page, or maybe you've had trouble getting an agent or a publisher, here's an opportunity. Um, It's cool to see publishers take this approach to not just acknowledging that needing more diverse books is a thing, and it's really a thing inside genre fiction. Romance is no exception um, to that, but that the traditional pipelines for publishing um, have not been upgraded in the ways that they need to be um, and opened up in the ways that they need to be to make publishing and stories as diverse and representative as they should be. Like that just is not all the way in place yet. Publishers are working on it and to varying degrees and trying things. Um, But one way to kind of get there faster is to just go around the Mm -hmm. traditional pipelines and open the doors for submissions. And I'm really interested in uh, what the outcomes will be here. And if Avon will announce like who got in this Mm. way and how their publishing stories work. It looks like you do have to have a manuscript, 75 to 85,000 worlds. You also must have a synopsis. I I got tripped on this. I was like, that's cool. You only need a synopsis to get started. I was like, that, well, that's not, I was like, Hmm, that's weird. But you do need to have the full manuscript as well. Um, really cool. Do apply to this. I, we saw someone else do something like this or something similar before, and I, I never followed up or mm-hmm. heard about, maybe they haven't come out yet, um, what the fruits of an effort like this would be. Can I point out one funny thing I thought about this? Like uh-huh. It says, um, PDF preferred, double space, 12-point font. All other formatting is up to you. Uh, what other <laughs> format? What are <laughs> if we like, can read know. it, you can submit it. I guess hmm. if you want to do the whole thing in italics, or I guess the font choice is yours. Yeah. I don't know, I just thought it was funny, very specific, which point, but you know, everything else is up to you. Interesting. Anyway, uh, that must be, there must, there's some story behind that it has to be a 12 point font. I think that's pretty interesting. Deadline is September 15th. So you really need to have a manuscript <laughs> ready to go, mm-hmm. I, I guess, unless you're going to, I guess you could, um, Ogmo Rimo. It if you wanted to, to b- blow through August um, real quick. And they say, please allow 12 weeks for response. That's a cool story. Can I do yeah. another weird one? Please. The French Army. So we talked about the U.S. Army getting into audiobooks mm-hmm. uh, as part of their training manuals. The French Army, uh, taking things a bit farther, they're hiring science fiction writers to imagine future threats. Huh. It's called the Red Team, and it's bringing on some people who, you know, write science fiction to do their thing and think of quote-unquote scenarios of disruption. That was actually the name of my metal band um, in 1987. (laughs) That's a good show title. Um, Defense Innovation Agency was set up last year to find existing technology and equipment that military might be able to use. Well, you need to figure out what your equipment you can use, but what are you going to use them on? They will try to anticipate how terrorist groups or hostile states might use advanced technology against friends. This is basically renting imagination. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating and terrifying, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the idea is that, like, I'm trying to imagine, like, what will actually happen. Like, someone writes, well, what if they um, used our smart speakers to uh, give subliminal messages? Like a very, like, Philip mm. K. Dick sort of mm-hmm. situation. Are they going to try to respond exactly to hypothetical, th- like, I, I don't understand, like, what's the next step? Okay, so you hire these science fiction writers say, here's something you can imagine happening, then what? I, I'm fascinated to know yeah. what would happen next. I think it's... I think it's also fascinating. We've seen some stories about tech companies hiring sci-fi mm-hmm. writers to do the same thing, like to help them get to like a truly out-of-the-box 
innovation and to think of ideas that people who have come up in tech don't have, but people whose job it is to think creatively for art might have. And I wonder if this is like the kind of the same idea of like generate a bunch of possible things Mm -hmm. that could happen. Maybe they'll identify themes in them or like, oh man, we've never thought about any of X. And so what can we do to increase security around that thing um because the the super specific examples i think would could send you on a bunch of wild goose chases of like military preparedness for things that are very unlikely to happen but maybe it gives them some new avenues for exploration it's it's interesting like i didn't really have any thoughts about it when we were talking about it being tech companies Mm -hmm. other than like that's interesting but also like and sometimes tech sci-fi writers do predict technology yeah. in fascinating ways that they're not even aware that they've fully done. Um, but it was kind of like, oh, you know, weird. Seems like a thing a tech company would spend a lot of money on. Like, that's a very Silicon Valley mm-hmm. thing. Like, we hired a sci-fi writer to think about the future. Uh, but, like, the weaponization of imagination in this way is uh, did strike me a little bit differently. It's interesting and scary. Yeah, um, and this got me to a story that I did not know anything about, was that shortly after September 11th, the Pentagon asked a group of screenwriters and sci-fi writers to help imagine, you know, other terrorist threats. And one of them was Steve D'Souza, whose most famous credit is the screenwriter of Die Hard. What? Uh, But the thing is, he's only the screenwriter. He didn't even write the novel that Die Hard is based on. Uh, Roderick Thorpe wrote the novel. Oh, Not a lot a of people name. know that Die Hard is actually an adaptation. Um, so you, I have never read that. Maybe this is a candidate for a book nerd movie club. Um, but anyway, uh, just similar kind of idea. We need people to help us think asymmetrically. Let's get out of our comfort zone of thinking, our existing categories, our existing constraints and pathways of, of figuring um, to do this. I just don't know what you do if a sci-fi, how how do you evaluate the things these sci-fi writers are saying? Like what, what's the next step? Like maybe I I don't have a great idea because it feels like it's just as many wild gooses as, as, as chickens you're looking for. It seems like they would have to be giving the sci-fi writers some kind of briefing or like baseline material. Like now, since I'm deep in the Da Vinci code now, (laughs) I think you could do a thing like ask Dan Brown, what are some ways that, a secret society and the Catholic church could come into conflict with each other. And Dan Brown could imagine some that maybe either the Catholic church or the secret society couldn't come up with on their own because he's looked at, at both of those things deeply. And I wonder if that's what's going on here is like France must be giving them, you would think like some sort of baseline material of like, look at all these things come Mm -hmm. in with this baseline knowledge and then using your sci-fi writer lens, ask some questions or imagine some threats to it. Um, Cause I think if like, if you just put, you know, plucked Neil Gaiman and dropped him into a France yeah. military meeting, like how's he supposed to, what's he supposed to start from to even make a meaningful contribution? Uh, yeah. That's I'm like, say, okay. So like, you know, I did an annotated episode about it. 1984, one of the more prescient sci-fi dystopia novels of all time. Some of it's survivorship bias. Cause it's just some of the things that, Orwell wrote about there, 
sort of have happened. But let's say you got that book in 19, let's say that was written for the Pentagon in 1948, mm. rather than given to the, what would you have done about that? I, I just don't understand because here's the other thing. Look at Philip K. Dick. All people always look at like, look at all these things that he predicted. Also, look at all the stuff that's never happened. Like the right. hit rate is still low. Like there's a little bit of a, a, a of a blind squirrel finding a nut situation here with survivorship bias of things that actually happened that someone said, you forget the thousands of things they wrote that nothing remotely related to it happened. So I don't know how you would parse the data you would get from sci-fi writers. I understand sort of the logic of it. It's like they imagine the future. Well, that's not actually what they do. They write fiction about things they yeah, only sort of know about. It, I just, just, it's it weird. seems like the signal to noise ratio yes. on whatever they would generate would be so stark that it would be hard for it to be worth it. I could see something where maybe what they're what, what the only thing that occurred to me that might be somewhat useful is if you needed help like scripting out war games or scenarios, right? Mm. Like you you actually had a scenario, but you wanted someone who could think about character and action and motivation and things like that, rather than just blue skying. It's like, well, we're gonna have crystal eyeballs that shoot onto um, goat skins, and that's how we're all gonna communicate <laughs> in the future. I don't think it's more. I don't think it's gonna be that. I think it'd be more like we're imagining. This this situation and this situation help us game out like more of a war game than a mm. blue sky. What we're gonna do in two hundred years? That, that that that's the only thing that makes sense to me because otherwise it's you get so, you extrapolate from any difference in actuality and it's gonna, the gap is gonna be some huge as to be farcical. I, I guess um, anyway. Yeah, many questions. Well, and with things like crystal eyeballs onto goat skins, we don't mm. have to worry that the French military is gonna come to us. No, no, that. that <laughs> Unless that's unless I unless I just nailed it. <laughs> How will you know, Jeff? <sighs> well, How will you when, know? When we all have got quartz eyes, we'll know <laughs> that I called it on three twenty three. I could be working for the Pentagon right now. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> We've been doing this show for a long enough time. We could have predicted some things. I don't think we have. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> There's been a long enough time we could have. The only thing I've ever come semi close on is when I sort of made the case for Bob Dylan to win the Nobel Prize a couple years before. Mm. But that was already when there was some rumblings that he was being considered, so it wasn't I can't take I can't I'd like to I'd love to take credit for it, but I, I really can't. <laughs> Let's end on the Booker Prize long list. Like, you know, the thing that in some ways people would understand <laughs> as the kind of thing that would lead us <laughs> story about this came out this week. I mean, the truth of the matter is I'm not super up on um fiction this year though i did read my sister's the ser- my sister serial mm-hmm. killer not this serial, but yeah, I just read that. who i also interviewed for recommended and she was great talking about jane Eyre was awesome um that's on the long list good for her uh interesting this testament by margaret atwood which is not out yet i think in the uk or here made the booker prize long lists is that a, is that doesn't mean it's going to be good both you and i are uh, concerned is strong but um watchful of what the testament's is going to be, um, I don't know how you say this. This is on my radar. It's Salman Rushdie's new book. It's an updating of Quixote, and I think it's called Kishat. I don't know how you say that it. That looks correct, yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, Frankenstein by Jeanette Winterson is a book I've, I looked up a little while ago. Um, this one is an audacious love story that weaves together disparate lives into an exploration of transhumanism, artificial intelligence, and queer love. So it's an updating and spin on Frankenstein. Um, so I, there's some bells out there ringing for mm-hmm. some of you about that. 
Where else do you want to go? Anything else you want to highlight? We don't need to run through them all because you know, then we'll be doing Amazon yeah. synopses of the rest. I, uh, I haven't had a chance to read An Orchestra mm. of Minorities by Chigozi Obioma yet, mm. but I loved The Fisherman. Um, he's a beautiful writer. I'll be keeping an eye on that. And Valeria Luiselli, whose book, The Lost Children Archive, uh, is a winner of many things for her previous work. So mm. have an eye on that. But really, the only reason that I cared about this announcement was oh the new margaret atwood is on there and then mm. how and why is it on there because there are no galleys of that happening nope. around here um so somebody got to read it and is it good or is it just important or both are my questions yeah i don't know that there's any signal to this we can i don't know we can <laughs> yeah, say that this is that good we can or not good it. um maybe it's not maybe that it's not a disaster i guess maybe it's maybe that's enough that we say another thing the orchestra of minorities is on my radar I mean, it's already out. It's been out for seven mm-hmm. months already, but it's a Igbo retelling of Homer's Odyssey, and I'm always interested yes. in Homeric retellings. Um, so there you go. I think that's our show. I think so. If you've got a favorite book on that booker list, um, let us know, podcast at bookriot.com. Get ready for the Da Vinci Code. I'm going to put my hair in a ponytail, and it's going to swing from side to side while I solve some codes. You know, there, there is a um, Mickey Mouse watch face for my Apple Watch. Maybe I should put that on. <laughs> Are we going to cosplay as, while we do book nerd movie hour? Yeah, I don't have the flowing locks uh, of a Robert Langdon. Um, it's a I, little hot for the tweed jacket, but I, I support I give that you a choice. Preview. I've got a lot of thoughts about Langdon as character. Never really given much thought to Langdon as character, mm. but also Hanks' portrayal of Langdon. Oh, I got it's thoughts like a, about it's that. It's like a sphinx looking at a mirror in the abyss. Um, I don't really know how, how to parse <laughs> what's going on with, with Hanks' portrayal of Langdon, but we can talk about that more. Rebecca, I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.